This episode of Last Game Podcast, we're going to talk about The Irishman, the latest epic film from Martin Scorsese, only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of The Last Game Podcast. It is I, Shafiq, along with my uh, special co-guest host. Uh, introduce yourself again, sir. Name is Dustin. <laughs> Fuck my wife, Dustin? Huh? You fuck my wife? Yes, we'll be talking about Martin Scorsese's epic The Irishman, which has finally arrived here in Singapore uh, on Netflix and not in the cinemas like it should be. But yes, we're entering a new era where basically nobody is going to watch a Scorsese film in the cinemas because if it doesn't have a cape or it's uh, got some sort of uh, attachment to uh, nostalgia from the 80s, nobody cares. Unless, of course, he remakes Goodfellas himself, which would probably be a bad idea. I mean... I think what the world needs right now is an all-female reboot of Goodfellas. What do you think, uh, Dustin? It worked, it, it worked out so well for Ghostbusters, right? Exactly. So well that they decided to do another sequel without them. <laughs> trailer just got released. Are you hyped for Ghostbusters Afterlife? No, I haven't seen the trailer. Really? Uh, it's got yeah. the kids from Stranger Things. Cool 80s vibe. They have the soundtrack... Uh, the Who You Gonna Call but in that cool piano uh, version and uh, okay it's directed by Jason Reitman son of Ivan Reitman so do you feel like Stranger Things and Ready Player One is just kicking off this entire thing where our our 80s like uh, childhood is just coming back and it's what we'll be watching for the next 15 years well we've been watching it for the the, the first 15 <laughs> now we need to watch it again and we need to tell kids out there is like yeah this was awesome when it was new <laughs> Why are you so into this shit? Because, okay, so The Irishman just launched here on uh, in Singapore on Netflix. It had a very brief run over in the US theatrically. It being a mild success because it had a very limited theatre run. But that is no metric for success nowadays anyways. It's come to a point where like Hollywood is not willing to bear the brunt of the cost of this film. I, w- I wouldn't even say like the Nero is expensive anymore. Then again, if you put him with Pacino, you put him with maybe taking Joe Pesci out of retirement, even Harvey Keitel comes to make an appearance and Scorsese himself I don't think works for scale and this movie is four hours long so there's definitely at least five to six months pre-shoot probably a whole year production gosh this thing must have ballooned up to like what, what, the budget was roughly around 160 million if I'm not mistaken right no, also because they had to like reinvent this the aging process which was I think two years to develop and then two years to develop and then they start testing it yeah, and I think altogether like four years before they finish like the film, so they had to develop this process before they could, could go. Okay, we can use these actors because we found a way to de age them, and it took them two years to get to that point. I don't know, but I mean, before we go into the full on uh, review and our take on the Irishman, maybe let's probably establish our own love for the man with the best eyebrows in the game. I mean, what was your introduction to the films of Martin Scorsese? I think Raging Bull is definitely that film, even though it hasn't necessarily aged well, because there are better boxing films now, and there are techniques that he used in the film that were new then, that are now considered to be like film school tropes. So I I think that it's going to be very hard to explain why Raging Bull is uh, an important film for me. There's a surprising amount of practical effects in that film, especially like when he lit the ring on fire to create that, what do you call it, the heat warp from like the fumes, mm. to kind of give the sense of like, you know, this was definitely yep. a, 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 the near in a fight for his life. And of course, the obvious trope of uh, punching a guy and having him spit out water in slow motion. 
which has been used to death in every single like you yeah. know boxing movie, even in, in the likes of like superior films like Rocky or its many sequels. Uh, and even also in the sense of like some of uh, a very st- this was the first occasion where a Hollywood actor had to gain weight for a role. <laughs> You know, before Christian Bale decided to go and uh, corner that market all by himself, you know, for, for every fucking movie he does. <laughs> <laughs> you know, remember back in the day when you had to kind of like actually lose the weight, uh, but then uh, w- with the power of CGI. <laughs> we can not only de-age you, but we can also de-fat you, I guess. A- I mean, Edward, Nort- Edward Norton as well, right? I remember that guy. Remember how he bulked up for like American History X, lost it all for Fight Club, and then just became Edward Norton for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like I've done this fucking twice I'm not doing it again I know as for myself uh, my introduction to Scorsese was yes I was one of those assholes who saw Taxi Driver and I got too into it and Incel's got an incel right yeah Incel's got an incel uh, back in the day sorry uh, we didn't have internet you know and I think if anything Martin Scorsese his true talent is in his ability to allow his actors to be able to thoroughly uh, actually reach beyond the script. Like, what a lot of people don't realize is, right, a lot of the greatest moments in a lot of uh, Scorsese's films are usually ad-lib. I mean, case in point is uh, definitely De Niro just going, you're talking to me in the mirror for a taxi driver. Uh, or even in Raging Bull, where, you know, that casual line, uh, did you fuck my wife? Apparently, uh, le- legend B is that De Niro said to Pesci, did you fuck my mother? And they used that reaction tape. And if anything, is like, I would love to see how Scorsese runs a set. Especially when you see all the behind the scenes of a Scorsese film, right? Is that there's this sense of camaraderie and sense of play that he directs without directing. Which is a very interesting way of allowing a film to kind of uh, fill in the gaps. Especially when it comes to a screenplay where, every, like, if you're, if you're on a tight spec script, you basically need to hit your so-called your story beats, right? But then, then you need to also allow the actors to kind of fill in like the void that is, you know, uh, emotional anguish or maybe a narrative uh, conveyance. I think the way Sozezi works is kind of like there are directors that have an association with being expensive and sometimes that's effects and sometimes that's the kinds of shots that they do. Mm. I think that where Sozezi probably is expensive, so to speak, is in terms of time. Time that he affords the actor in pre-production, time that he affords the actor in rehearsals, in term in terms of really getting them into the character, because that's kind of like where the genius that you're speaking about comes yeah. from. Something that is ad-lib, but it isn't really ad-lib. It's more of like the actor being allowed to immerse themselves into the spirit of the character that they can then come up with a line that is perfectly in character but unscripted and unwritten mm. because it's through the osmosis of understanding all of these like disparate inputs and marinating in it until you come up with something that is in character but not written. True. But I mean like uh, Kevin Pollack uh, once said on his own very uh, podcast, right? He mentioned an anecdote when he was working on the set of Casino and he was sitting opposite uh, Robert De Niro himself, right? And apparently he had to go through 47 different takes. Uh, Kevin Pollack said I liked my first take you know but by take 45 I think I, I found the only way to say this line <laughs> because like even compared to a lot of how a lot of films are nowadays where it's not necessarily character or narrative driven it's more along the lines of like we just need to get to the action scene as quick as possible we need to get to the money shot we need to get to the the product placement like besides Tarantino besides somebody like Nolan like Scorsese is definitely to me and also in hindsight when I watch something like The Irishman 
this is a man who is very much in touch with his own legacy and very much in touch with uh, him approaching the twilight of his career and it felt to me like this was uh, in essence an opportunity for him to get like the old gang back together and also to finally rope in Pacino who he's never worked with and they've known each other since like fucking the Godfather era and yeah, that's the surprising thing about it right when you hear that this is the first time they fucking work together yeah you know and you've definitely seen Pacino and De Niro together I mean you've seen Heat you just you just assume that they work together because they like should yeah, have. this is the gang right yeah, yeah. he's worked with DiCaprio more times than with Pacino but then again I think Pacino's a bit of a recluse right he doesn't quite lend himself to roles as often as he used to even Robert De Niro would pop up here and there like he was in the Joker film and yep. like I think for a lot of people especially the younger generation they might recognize him more from as like the surly dad from Meet the Fockers and not so much from like that's Travis Bickle right there you know or like you know mm. th- th- that's the guy from Casino <laughs> it, it's kind of a sign how, of how much we age that like what the actor is associated with has completely changed it's kind of like how we remember Bill Gates as like you know the guy that ran Windows the guy that like you know tried to fuck over Linux and, and all, <laughs> of the, all of that shit and now everyone's like oh Bill Gates the philanthropist like, that is strange right if it wasn't for Bill Gates I wouldn't know what antitrust means and, and now his foundation is like you know building toilets for Africa and all this kind of stuff so what you can say right yeah how can you be mean to Bill Gates and all the lives he's destroyed he's trying to cure malaria god damn it Anyway, let's go back to Martin Scorsese. Ah, what a tangent. Let's look back at his career. Do you feel that this is Scorsese kind of semi-low-key announcing his retirement? Because it kind of feels like he is definitely not going through the old-school Hollywood system as previous. I mean, and that was like coming up of like, you know, something like The Wolf of Wall Street. And to me, like The Wolf of Wall Street was his last big... Uh, it was basically him throwing down the gauntlet and reminding kids out there, younger directors, is like, nah, I still got it, you know, reminding you I'm goddamn Martin Scorsese. Whereas this felt more like, not say a retreat, it felt like him probably leaning back, enjoying a cup of coffee, and just telling a good story with his friends. I mean, there is this common criticism where the Irishman feels like he's not pulling, he's not, say, pulling his punches, but he's not kind of like aiming as high as he used to be. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like this is maybe Scorsese kind of like just going in for like for a tight landing and probably just closing up like the the end of his career? I feel like it's more of uh, he's trying to get to the gang together, and I think for most people, they would disagree over what the Scorsese film is the best, but most of them would agree that top three is Goodfellas. So. And most of these actors have acted in films of this ilk before. So it's kind of like an all-star uh, reunion. Yeah. Where, where each of them individually can probably, you know, pull a, a mafia-style film together, even with a completely new director. Like, you know, one of the actors, basically uh, 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 Al Pacino or Joe Pesci could go, okay... I was in fucking Godfathers. I can I can pull you through this together with a new director. So I think they all individually can pull their own weight. But it's like, let's get the gang together and do the best fucking film of this genre that's ever been done. Mm. Because who's better qualified than all of us together in the same cast? So it's like the Expendables of Mafia, right? Where it's like, but but without has-beens, with people that are not at the tip of their prime. But there isn't anyone. There's no hair apparent for any of them. So, I mean, I agree to that to an extent because it does feel like masters of the genre and uh, these are the people who kind of pioneered all the tropes and all the cliches that we associate with the gangster or the mafia film. 
and to yeah. see them kind of like you know take their stride with it because like I would see something like the Irishman like and I would think to myself it, it feels kind of like watching a legacy band doing their greatest hits and just doing it very well it's like watching Iron Maiden live again like yep they can still do the solos they can still hit the notes and like they still got it you know and it's like maybe also with somebody like me I walk into this thinking like I didn't need to be blown away I just wanted that kind of nostalgia baity feeling of like yeah one one more for the road let's just get it out of our systems and like to even get Joe Pesci out of retirement which we, we haven't seen him since fucking Casino which is like it's been 25 years since like him De Niro even like you know looked across each other to me the one of the highlights is definitely watching Pesci still he still got it you know and he's an underrated actor I mean for us we have two versions of Pesci we have the kind of weird safe for children version that we saw in Moonwalker and Home Alone and then we have Joe Pesci from Goodfellas you know like, and my cousin Vin- and my cousin Vinny and my fucking cousin Vinny yo Marissa Tomei in her prime son and like there's something about Joe Pesci where I feel like there's no ego about him and it's very strange because it's like when you see him in interviews like he's so shy and he's so unwilling to ex- like uh, expound on his process or even like talk about the past it's like and one thing is like when I was watching the Irishman, like all the the press junkets and all the like the interviews with uh, with the with the cast, right? Pesci just seems so out of place and so like he's a man. You couldn't get a single. You couldn't get answer of him. It's just like you ask him the process, then you like give you like a one word answer, one sentence answer, and then let the rest of the guys talk. You know? Yeah, it, it kind of feels like Pacino and De Niro are definitely pros. They know like this is all part of the marketing. The marketing budget is paying for their flight to go to Vegas to do the to do the junket or to do like you know the, the conference right and Pesci just doesn't give a fuck because he's like I'm already retired like like maybe it- what, what, what are you gonna do never hire me again <laughs> you'll never work in this town again yeah, like, oh, fuck. he's like fuck it I don't care anymore I'm pretty sure that Raging Bull all the way to that Goodfellas money is like taking care of a lot of things like what I understand is like he spends most of his time just playing golf and like living his life so good on you Joe Pesci for, uh, <laughs> I, I, th- I think for I think for for most of these actors, if you want to count whether they have savings, you just have to count the number of divorces they've had. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Daenerys at least got three. <laughs> that, that I remember. That's why that motherfucker needs to keep working. Hey, that's why he needs to keep working. Joe Pesci is still probably married to his wife, right? So that's why he doesn't have to work ever again. So oh, actors, huh. actors, if you want to know how to get how to retire early, just Don't remember. <laughs> Don't, be like Leo don't get married be like George Clooney kinda get married but don't make it official I don't no, know be like George Clooney marry up be like Guy Ritchie marry somebody who has to pay you alimony uh, how the mighty have fallen let's end this and let's go straight into the review of The Irishman now The Irishman is based on the book I Heard You Pay in Houses and it follows Frank Sheeran who was a truck driver who ascends into the ranks of the underworld under the guidance of uh, Russell Russell Buffalini played by Joe Pesci uh, mind the Italian it kind of culminates in how he works as a person who paints houses which is a um, metaphor for somebody who kills people and this also leads him into working for a notorious and very powerful teamster Jimmy Hoffa played gloriously by Al Pacino now initial thoughts on the film Dust uh, on watching this four-hour epic, I don't think it necessarily feels like four hours because I think that one thing that Sosezi does very well is world building, and it's not a genre that you associate with world building because you kind of think of science fiction 
and you know high fantasy stuff that needs world building but mm. to a certain extent the mafia is the underworld that a lot of people don't know about a lot of people have very surface uh, impressions of what the mafia is but you know you need to understand the world you need to understand the rules the unspoken rules what the right thing to do is and, and a lot of hidden context and subtlety that needs to come in at the later parts of the film that's not something you can get to like by establishing characters within you know the the typical 40 40 minute beat i think that in terms of duration it doesn't necessarily feel that it needs it's longer than it needs to be because they are building a very very layered context and especially i think the the relationship between uh, Sharon and his daughter, which is actually the biggest part of you know mm. the the crux of the movie, which we're not gonna give away as a spoiler, but you know the emotional resonance of her expression, which kind of tells you a lot of unspoken things about what happens to Hoffa. I mean, I totally uh, like that character especially because she represents the timestamps of this man's descent into uh, darkness. Because it is through his daughter where we see him lose his humanity. And also at the same time, what I thoroughly enjoyed, right, especially at Anna Paquin's uh, very low-key performance, is that she does it with just her eyes. She just, the way she looks at her dad in a way that is totally, like, you know, she feels not only embittered but betrayed. But especially when it's later established that she retains a... Kind of some hatred for him, especially towards the end of the, of the of the film. I think that was very necessary in kind of uh, rounding up this character of Frank Sheeran because maybe somebody like De Niro, like you've seen him do this so many times, and then it's just so cool. You know what I mean? There's something very effortless and very stylish about the way he dispatches people, or the way he just takes down people, and especially in the way he delivers lines. It's like something as simple as like, you know, yeah, we'll take care of it, and then you. You understand like what that truly means. Or when he says something along the lines of it is what it is. That line was so beautifully read, you know. And I think one of the things that makes this a longer film as well is that part of what makes it run longer is because there are a lot more killings or you know painting houses or episodes of painting houses that you need to show to mm. show that what the man has become. And with films that are shorter, you have less opportunities to show this. So what tends to happen then is maybe you have like three big killings in a shorter film. But that means that they need to extract as much entertainment value out of those killings. And then those killings become bombastic and they become a bit unrealistic. But the difference in this film is that really, the Mafia is a professional criminal organization. They're not flashy. They're efficient. They get it done. And... It, you know, it, it cycles on. If you were too flashy about your killings, you wouldn't last very long as a mobster. So the point of this is that it establishes a lot more killings, done efficiently, less flashy. But that's the whole point, because they're professionals. And you need the duration to be able to establish that he messes up his first few killings, but he gets better and better to the point that, you know, the place that he disposes of weapons is fucking flooded with guns. <laughs> True that. I think also what I appreciate is like Scorsese has an ability to uh, incorporate a sense of escalation, and I think that's what his primary skill is. Besides getting actors to kind of deliver the nuance or the emotional, I would say, uh, resonance of a scene, but also in his ability to take a story and make it kind of go to the next level so seamlessly. 
But I mean, a counterpoint to probably what you mentioned is like if you were to say put this up against Goodfellas. Now, Goodfellas is extremely streamlined. It also has a very multi generational story arc where you actually see the rise of of one uh, gangster, okay, the Ray Liotta character, starting out as a as a kid working for Robert De Niro all the way up to the end when he finally gives them up to the feds. Now, uh, a common complaint a lot of people have about the Irishman is that because of the amount of star power um, because like if you were to look at something like goodfellas it's basically uh you have three paramounts which is ray liotta and his rise and rise and fall of uh, ray liotta's character then you have bobby de niro who turns from mentor to uh anguished uh villain and then you have joe pesci which is the wild card who gets taken out very quickly in the game and, and then in something like the irishman is like everybody has a rise to power and it kind of feels like there are moments where I felt it wasn't necessarily a uh, draggy, but I would say like I kind of caught myself trying to find ways to streamline the story a little bit, and like the only thing that I can come up with that was in uh in a way efficient would be like cliche things like montage or cliche things like uh, let's cut to newspaper clippings or let's cut to like you know. Uh, the the very tropish like you know instead of showing you killing a guy let's cut to what uh, the flashing of photographs of the crime scene to kind of uh, you know uh, paint a, a bigger or broader picture like we, we don't see the body getting killed but we just see the aftermath you know and then we just see how that uh, would I would say affect the, the public perception of maybe certain characters in this film so when I was watching like The Irishman the four hours bothered me at first but in hindsight, is there also a sense of excess? Because it's like I would feel that Netflix is not beholden to the the cinema runtime rule, where you gotta clock it in under two hours at least, because we need to sell more tickets. Because if your running time is too long, we can only have so many screenings. You know what I mean? So does this also kind of feel like Scorsese was looking at this? Is like okay, this is a, an opportunity for me to do my my version of like a Sergio Leone three hour epic. This is my Once Upon a Time in America. I would say like this is him free reign just. Probably like there's no studio pressure. There's no like you know executives coming down and saying the film's too long. We gotta cut it down. I, I think part of it as well, right, is that like one thing that Sozzi is extremely strongly and vehemently passionate about is the idea of cinema as art, and cinema not in the sense of cinema the building you watch it in, but the sense of cinematic proportions, the sense of story, the sense of being drawn in. Mm. And a lot of people are like conflating that and thinking, oh yes, what he means is cinema, which means it must be watched in cinema, not on a TV screen. But I think the point that he made in a number of the press junkets was about the sense of artistry and when he went on of, on his rant about like superhero movies, right? Mm. Part of his point is that cinema is the sense of story, it's the sense of storytelling, it's the sense of scale, scope and depth. Yeah. And... and if Netflix is the place where he gets to have this vision without a studio giving him notes or telling him things about duration, then, you know, cinema is where creativity happens, not not a building that's screened in. It's about it's about how you elicit emotions through the medium mm. and and that, that medium is generally video and audio, but I mean, that may evolve, right? Because cinema used to be, you know, black and white. 
cinema, you know, that, that every evolution in technology that cinema has taken, whether it's going to colour or having talkies, yeah. there have always been people who go, oh, that's not real cinema. Yeah. And then we've evolved, right? Also, a sad state of affairs when I can only think that we live in a day and age where, yeah, this will never get a theatrical release. It's not like it's something that is so uh, one of a kind because it's like, if you were to go back to like maybe even the David O. Selznick era, like Gone with the Wind used to have intermissions. Lawrence of Arabia is fucking three and a half hours long. Even like Tarantino's like uh like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like yeah that is kind of breaching onto the point of it's obnoxious. And Wasn't Once Upon a Time in America like twelve hours long? Even longer, you know. There's something about the length of this, right? That okay, I did mention earlier that it was. It wasn't bordering on obnoxious. It was more along the lines of it did test my patience in certain areas. But I would say like this is the kind of movie where you have to savor it. And came to a point where especially during the halfway mark where things started to ramp up, I kind of didn't want this to end because it also kind of felt to me like okay, once this movie arrives at its you know obvious conclusion, right? And then it's like that's it. That's the end. And then there's nothing else to kind of surprise you or blow you away because like one thing I also want to talk about especially is the performances. Kind of, I wouldn't say disappointing, but I would say I was really hoping for either Pacino and De Niro to finally go off on each other because every time you put those two together, and these guys are very famous for, especially in their prime, going big. And nobody goes big in this film. There's that feeling in my head, is like, especially as a cinephile and like watching these guys' careers in their entirety, like, just once, just go off. And they don't, you know, especially when you see like that scene of uh, De Niro and Pacino in the bedroom, just hanging out and being like a couple of guys who kind of realize that it's kind of awkward we're all sleeping in the same room but also at the same time what are you gonna do you're my bodyguard you can't i can't i'm not i can't make you sit outside and he's like okay you're right yeah. you know and he's like i did not expect the buddy cop aspect of it to be extremely <laughs> entertaining you know what i mean because it always felt to me like these two guys were like these two juggernauts of like very strong method acting never had the opportunity to go like head to head properly but I think I think the character dynamics also don't quite allow it at that time right because you know Hoffa yeah. is this larger than life character and then who, who is who is who is Shirin like who are you to, to have that moment mm. the Nero played Shirin and then I mean I've seen the documentary footage like Shirin is actually kind of low key kind of like he is what he is and that portrayal is quite accurate to a man who is definitely like he's got the soldier mentality. He does what he does, and he doesn't talk about it. Okay? He just keeps things quiet. He he always knows that you know there's somebody. Uh, like he he's ne- he's not a rat, and I get it. And I get that De Niro is just staying true to character, you know. But then again, you want fan service. I want a bit of fan service because there is it's very unlikely we will ever put these two actors together ever again. And I can't think of any project. No country for old man grumpy old man. <laughs> no country. For- I wanted something but I got something else and hurts that this feels like one of those like you're an old man when you really like shit like this <laughs> it's hard it's, it's like I don't think I don't think you can get away from that now because like most of the bands you listen to now would be bands that were that are coming back for their re- retirement tour and you, you know what I mean we're, we're just yeah. of that we're just the grumpy guys that go oh this this new music is shit True, but I kind of like some new bands. <laughs> I kind of. No, so do I. So do I. But, but I mean, like, okay, it wouldn't be a proper review without some nitpicking. So maybe let's go in a little. Because I've been kind of dancing around some of my nitpicks. And okay, aside from the obvious length of the film, one nitpick I do have is uh something. Okay, we we need to 
kind of point to the not so wrinkly elephant in the room. It is a selling point, but also at the same time kind of distracting because one of the gimmicks of this film is definitely the whole de-aging process. And I think the three actors did their darndest to act off the age they're supposed to be. And there is that running joke that is going around all the press junkers. It's basically like De Niro's like saying like, okay, I just added 30 years to my career. No, sir, you're not. Y- you still look like a 70-year-old man walking down those stairs. You still look like a 70-year-old man getting out of that car. There's just some things, and I don't know if it's my eye, or I don't know if it's just something that I kind of notice, is that I can sense when a person is, I would say, it's not even about like the Uncanny Valley and how their faces are, but there's something about their physical performance where you know, like, these they're not as spry as they used to be. And, I mean, like, you watch... Uh, something like even say Goodfellas when like De Niro's in his 40s or when you see something like Casino and mm. he does not match I would say the natural rhythm of his body then and I mean it to me is just a major nitpick because it kind of like especially there's this one scene where basically when his uh, daughter was kind of uh, I would the say the food store right yeah he was a, the, the she was yeah. she was accosted by like some grocer and then he goes there to kick the guy's ass right and you can tell that you no, know, the, the punches didn't land the way it should, and the way he was stomping on him. It you're, you're like, you're like, this is a, this is a ger- geriatric like curb stomping, right? Yeah, you know, and it's like that's the that's the one moment that kind of took me out of the whole experience where I was like, oh yeah, okay, that's that's a seventy year old man underneath all of that. Then comes the the thing. It was like because it's a, it's it's a wide shot. You don't really need you know that much detail on the close up. Could we get a stunt guy or? Do we really need to have the Nero act out that scene? Because I think that I think that the wide shot is kind of like uh, a counterpoint to a lot of the current action movies, with some exceptions like John Wick, where everything happens with fast cuts and, mm. and close-ups, and and you don't really see the action. So I think that it is you know, directors that want to separate themselves from that kind of style would tend to try to do it on the wide shot just because yeah. they want they want the brutality to be writ large and they don't want it to be masked or subsumed by, you know, cuts in editing or, you know, speed ups or just confusion confusion cuts, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I think that it was probably a very deliberate choice. And it's quite ironic that the reason the de-aging works very well for performance doesn't work well for action because the reason it works so well for performance is that I don't need to hire a younger guy that can't act as well. I can use Robert De Niro and his you know his years of experience of learning how to control his, his face and tweaking the right muscles to get this particular expression across which works great when you can de-age the guy but when you can't de-age his body and the fact that he is an old guy that can't you know kick someone's ass like a 30 year old can that's that's the detriment of it yeah because it's like for a lot of the Irishmen right and it's definitely in the it's definitely in the the marketing and the media it's the the image of seeing Pesci Pacino and De Niro as how we remember them in their prime in various different versions of their prime and it also kind of feels to me like okay why I, I need to bring this up is because it it kind of feels like 
Scorsese has this opportunity to totally encapsulate a performer's ability to represent various stages of the character. But there are moments where, especially watching, like, say, even like Al Pacino getting up from the chair when he was like, you know, getting angry at the Kennedys, right? That's a that's a, that's a that's a, a grandpa get out of the chair yeah, with rage. You know what I mean? That's that's a, that's an old man. Is that's not a forty year old guy? You know who's spry and ready to fight some revolution with the teamsters. Then comes the technical aspect. Because to me, immediately I thought to myself, is like, okay, you can make them look young, but deep fakes exist. Why don't we just put their face on? younger guys for the action shots with the current de-aging that was uh, put together plus their salaries and whatsoever like, okay the, the, the budget ballooned to, to the point where Hollywood didn't want to touch this film with a 10 foot pole okay, I'm putting on my director set right in terms of just efficiency you know, or like I'm also putting on my executive producer set it's like yeah we can just get a stunt guy for the action shots put the Nero's face on him and then he wouldn't mind wearing the weird uh, ping pong balls on the face. You know what I'm saying? I think that a big part of the selling point for De Niro, I don't know, not De Niro, a big part of the selling point for Sosezi was the fact that he wouldn't be getting notes of this nature. Parent, like, you know, trying to helicopter parent how he directs. I'm fucking Martin Sosezi, you are an intern. <laughs> like, you know, like, you, 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 you are a guy in his mid-30s that went to film school, like, you know, a decade ago. Who the fuck are you to tell me how to direct this scene, right? Man, you know, like, I'm fucking Martin Scorsese, like, shouting down some poor executive. Do you also kind of get what I'm saying? Is this, like, there's sometimes when he's, like, as a filmmaker, times when he's, like, you gotta think about the budget, sir. You know what I mean? Like, and I think he's probably gone past that point where it's like, budget? Netflix is playing for everything. Everybody's gonna act out there. Everybody does their own stunts. I don't think it was that easy in terms of budget because that's why it took so long to get made to begin with. So I think that, mm. it, it, I don't think it's he, I don't think it's him going, oh, budget or, or money is no object. I think they're very conscious about how they spend their money because it took them that long to get someone willing to fund it. And I think part of it is, is that a lot of the funding went into developing the technology for de-aging. Yeah. So it's kind of harder to justify, oh, you spend this much money for this process and what the fuck? You're not using it? You're using a stuntman? Then what the fuck did we wait like all, all this time and what did we, what did Probably, we wait two yeah, years to yeah. develop this <laughs> for, right? That sounds like a situation so, too. So it's like the sunk cost into the de-aging. Like, well, if we spend this much on it, you better fucking use it for everything. <laughs> That could probably be the case, right? Because Elsa kind of felt to me like this, right? Like, why are they gonna, like, have fucking Robert De Niro do an action scene or, like, have a fight scene? Or especially... He's uh, he's not Tom Cruise, sir. He's not Tom Cruise, you know? And it's like, the insurance on this man. Like, if the guy loses a hip, that's it. You know, you could have cut off a little bit of the cost because I can't help but think at the back of my head, like, this movie is expensive, but it doesn't look expensive. Except for like the groundbreaking, uh, very uncanny valley breaching, de-aging technology, there are moments where, in your head, I'm like thinking to myself, is like, okay, if you were to ask, if you were to tell me that this movie costs 160 million dollars, and like if you were to just say like, okay, maybe let's put like you know 60 million to 80 million on just the CGI, okay, I can see that, but then the rest of the movie doesn't feel like. Where's the budget going? You know what I mean? And it, I know it's salaries, and I know it's no la, take a, you, you, If you take away marketing and you 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 fix it on how much is actually spent on production, yeah, then I think you yeah because marketing is such a big part of like. But it's uh, not Hollywood marketing. Expenses. You know what I mean? It's not like that. Two hundred. I, I I know. Yeah, I know it's not the full Hollywood marketing because it's mostly streaming. It's got a limited release, but still, you've got 
there's still marketing that you need to do. Yeah, I think I, I I get what you mean in terms of how it looks aesthetically. It looks like uh on the low end thirty, on the high end seventy to eighty mil. Yeah, right. In terms of how it looks, so I I get what you mean. It's just knowing that they had to develop this whole new technology for it, and that you've got to align the schedules of like these four. Okay, not four because Joe Pesci came out with time, but like three really big stars, and you have to align their schedules. So, some but what are they doing just, in the meantime? That's the question. Also, is like, what do you need to? What are you in a rush to to do right now that you you can't make time for this? Grumpy old man five. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, like just say for comparison's sake, right? Goodfellas, which is an epic all to itself and spans multi generations and is a huge movie and has the characters age out, right? That movie only cost twenty five million dollars to make, and this is nineteen nineties yeah, money. I get it adjusted for inflation. Yeah, but none of these guys are the stars that they are now when they acted in Goodfellas, right? Goodfellas made well, them at stars, least the so they... Nero. The Nero was definitely hot shit by then, right? Yeah, he, he's hot, he was hot shit by then, but like now you're talking about Daniel who's been hot shit for decades and how much more is, he, is his time worth, especially if like, oh, it's time, I'm I'm old, I could be spending with family. You're gonna, I'm going to have to get a lot more zeros on the end of this check to get out of bed in the morning. But it's Marty! <laughs> no? It doesn't work for him either? No, I think it does. But I think that what it buys, or rather, I think that the budget is more of like the technology development, and I think it's time. I think the biggest expense really is time as opposed to necessarily like I mean there's wardrobe as well and, and all those other things but that's smarty for all of his films but I think it's the time on set to go okay let's take let's shoot this another day when you're more in the zone for example or like yeah, I believe the light's that. not right today that, Let, that sounds very else. Yeah, that, that sounds exactly like what I think it is also. Then again, there's a lot of moments where these guys are doing their lines sitting down, you know? Like, especially Al Pacino. Al Pacino does half the movie sitting down. And the only time he stands up is for his a moment with Pesci, which I thoroughly appreciated. There's just a lot of scenes of guys sitting down, talking to each other about things. Pacino does go ham when he does a lot of the, the more hoorah, like, you know, standing in front of a crowd moments. Yeah, that's it. It's like, I don't know. I don't know where money is going. And... Yes, I do understand that like, there's probably... I wouldn't say it's a safety net, but I would say like Netflix at least you know footed the bill and said, like, no, no, finish your masterpiece. But the, crew, but the crew requirements are much larger as a result because every single camera had to have one camera uh, mm, for, there you go. For, Ma- for Martin Sosezi, two infrared witness cameras to capture like all of the, the, the data for, for the de-aging process. And that's one camera. And there were frequently scenes where they would shoot two cameras and somewhere they even shoot three. So all together you're talking about... Oh, especially when they do two like, singles, right? Then it's like set, six cameras at once, right? So basically two singles. But then there were c- certain days that they shot three cameras as well. Every camera times three. Plus a wider. So there's nine yeah. cameras. God damn it. Whoever's running Video Village, <laughs> you champion, you. <laughs> Show me and, the, and, all those rushes. The yeah, and then think... Think, think about all the scenes shot in the car with that camera set up, right? Like anything that's in... Imagine you need you need to have three cameras and then any of the setups that you, you have problems with, like corner of a house. Okay, we've got fucking three camera rig. We need to like knock down this wall. I think that's like... Those, okay, that kind of shit adds look, up. I, I found out this, right? Especially the car shots, right? Especially when they're doing the driving and there's young versions of them, right? Okay, 
background is totally fake. Uh, is the is a uh, backwards projection? I think they had these yeah. gigantic LED. Kind yeah, of... they had the screens, right? They had this. They use screens instead of using green screen. They just use LEDs. Which I kind of noticed too, and it, it's not like a terrible nitpick, but it's just like, oh, okay, this is obviously not, you know, a shot outside. This is definitely soundstage. But yeah, but I, I think I think. But but I think in terms of like you know the kind of like crewing requirements that you need whenever every camera is three cameras yeah and and you know lenses and like rank d- data wrangling and everything I think the post process probably would have been fairly intensive as well because now you have a post process that's just not color grading and everything you've also got like okay de aging de aging grading. Like, yeah. I I need yeah like okay can we have more mouth wrinkles and can we have like less eye uh, less crow's feet like you know like you're used to color grading going okay I want more cyan and the highlights and everything now you're going uh less crow's feet more like you know slightly more triangle chin it's like you know like those Instagram apps right can I have a sharper chin can you raise my cheekbrows a bit like and and this is like stuff that they do in the edit where I need more expression but then you have to go into what translates into more expression? Is it like, you know, more lines on the cheek? The de-aging took that out so he looks younger, but now the thing that he does with his face that gives expression is gone. So we need to bring that back a little. And I think that's probably the back and forth that caused a lot of the delays and the expenses. I guess so too. I mean, like, it kind of blows me away. How they hide all their, you know, the turkey necks? Because all of them have a bit of a gobble-gobble if you see them doing their press junkets. Either they taped it down or did they just, like, maybe spot-killing brush all that shit away? But, you know, I would definitely love to explore the technology a little bit more because I think this is definitely... I wouldn't say it's the future, but I would say it is an interesting way to keep certain actors' careers alive. Or if you need to do another fucking Terminator, this is the proper way to do young Arnie now. I would say just get old Arnie and then just like de-age him. Because I think it'll keep it'll keep the good the good character actors alive and it'll <laughs> kill a lot of the crappy ones. How dare you? Arnold Schwarzenegger is a treasure. Okay? I mean I'm I can't watch another Terminator movie and then they not explain how does the Terminator age. That doesn't make sense. He's a fucking robot. I can't think of any other use case scenarios for this because it's like in terms of storytelling or narrative right I mean where else can we use this technology or how else would it push the proponent of like you know cinema because the only other thing I can think of is like okay this looked cool in Benjamin Button you know because then they forward aged and reversed aged and then you needed to have various aspects of Brad Pitt's very chiseled and almost uh, you know perfect face but they've developed this technology and like it, again the running joke is you know this is an opportunity for older actors to kind of uh, retain their legacy and stay employed even longer and like oh, all you younger actors you don't even need this technology because you know in fact nobody's gonna go out to watch younger actors do anything because I can't think of anybody right now who isn't in a Marvel movie or who isn't in some sort of a franchise picture who is you know uh, of like uh, you know success after the 90s or 2000s because like this technology doesn't apply to them we don't really need to de-age Benedict Cumberbatch though I feel the need to push his eyes closer together I, I think that it's useful to not see this purely as de-aging I think it has been used to enable de-aging but I think the real revolutionary part of this technology is the ability to do facial motion capture without the motion capture suit and without the trackers yes. because a big part a big part of the problem with uh, motion tracking has always been that 
uh, it's got to be a person willing to wear something that puts balls all over his face. Yeah, the blue suit, right? Yeah, the blue suit and everything. And it's it's been a very, very specific niche. And a lot of actors uh, consider it beneath them. But regardless of all of that, it just puts you in a different mental space. And as an actor, if you need every little bit of prep, you know, in terms of keeping in character, it's going to be very hard to do that when you're in when you have to wear a specific suit because you know maybe sitting in the period garments that you're wearing for the thing maybe that oh yes this makes me uncomfortable and then you you, you can embody the character better because you're wearing exactly what the character should be wearing I get it so I think it's more useful to see this as a way of doing motion tracking without the motion tracking suits and that will enable everything that motion tracking does without the performance penalty of having actors that are not performing at their optimum because they have to wear the stupid suits. Because, like, I mean, going off on that point, right, it kind of makes sense. I mean, not saying it makes sense. Um, what I'm trying to say is that why isn't James Cameron, like, stepping out and, like, like, hey, what are you guys figuring out right now? Because, I mean, he is the guy when it comes to pushing technology in films. And, like, he does owe, like, fucking, like, no, he doesn't owe Fox, like, nine Avatar movies because they got bought over by Disney, right? Does he still owe Disney, mm. like, nine Avatar movies? Possibly, right? I was... I was about to say, right, that it would actually work very well after because, like, rather than them necessarily having to, like, do, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're doing maybe with prosthetics and, yeah. and uh, makeup, right, could theoretically, if this technology works the way it should, just, like, show up, do it in your, your clothes, do it in yoga gear, and we, we can do it in post. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's there yet, but I think that this technology is the... The nascent baby steps towards something of that ilk. You come to a point where it's basically you get the best actor and he doesn't need to uh, necessarily do all the action himself. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, when it comes to use case scenarios, just off the top of my head, here's my pitch. My reboot of Cocoon, where we have all these old fucks like De Niro, Pacino, whoever, or like, you know, even like Meryl Streep. And then, you know, we have the pool scene and then we just de-age them and then it's them in their 30s again and it's just weird <laughs> because you've never had all these actors in the same film before. Uh, copyright Last King Podcast, I thought of that first. I have the treatment ready right now. <laughs> I even have the list of old fucks I want to put in this film. Oh, man, I would love to put Jack Nicholson next to Pacino and next to De Niro. That has not been done. And Jack Nicholson played Hoffa back in the 90s. Fuck, man. Totally forgot about that. Shit. That's a missed opportunity right there. Right. Like, you could have gotten yeah. the whole gang back together again. Even fucking from ten, like, Last Temptation of Christ. Get Willem Dafoe in. Now wait. Even he when he was young looked like that. It was kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, maybe not him. I don't know. Uh, but wouldn't it have been, I would say, tr- I mean traditionally, wouldn't it have been better to cast the young version? Because there's also a sense of Think about it this way: De Niro is like saying, like, "Oh, we could have got we we, we could have gotten a younger actor to play the younger version of me." Like, didn't you play the younger version of Marlon Brando, The Godfather Two, motherfucker? What are you saying? Like, you of all people should be like, "No, we, we need to get, get give the kids a chance." Who is the who is the guy who's gonna come here and muck the scenes just like me? I think it's so Zizi going. Well, I I'm not gonna fucking make the sequel. So like, <laughs> what what the fuck do I care? Well, I'll be dead by then. <laughs> Well, do you think this is going to win any Academy Awards? Has the Academy finally accepted Netflix films as something that can be nomination worthy? This is a business thing. 
So I I don't think so because I think that they're kind of like fighting their last stand, right? Because if this wins an award, then and Netflix already has the most nominations. So I think that Hollywood is continuing to fight this battle of cinema belongs in the cinema and it's cinema as the building that you watch stuff in as opposed to cinema as the art form and what it evokes in terms of emotion or artistry yeah. which is what I talked about earlier with like the way Sozezi is trying to define cinema and I think that's that's the the big difference now right which is like when we think of cinema what do we think of it is it is it the dark room is it watching it with people is it the emotions that it evokes is it what is that sense and that exists for us because we have grown up in a time where cinema was the place that you could watch things of this scale if because of the windowing you can't see it until like years later or like you know at least a few months later yeah. so if you wanted to watch it now this is your only option but now that you have other options it's no longer the primal focal point and does that mean that cinema is not what it used to be because the options are, ch- are different again I hate to say this right speaking from old man corner there is also a sense of like I kind of miss how cinema was pretty much uh, given limited releases back in the day too because like you you cannot call anything underground anymore because somehow you can find it you can get your hands on it you can't say that this is uh there is a scene like there's no like underground film scene of like all these filmmakers and they have very limited releases you need to go to all these artsy kind of picture houses where you can only see this film and now it's come to a point where like okay you have like fucking hipster places like the projector you have all like uh obtuse and obscure films right and there's something along the lines of like as much as i agree with you that cinema isn't necessarily the building you watch it in it is more or less the experience right but there is something that is extremely necessary about uh, A, watching it with an audience because cinema, if anything, is a group experience. You know? I agree. And then another thing is, is watching with an audience in a dark, closed-off room with a good sound system. Like, I need that dislocation from, I would say, uh, my, you know, my, my tangential form. I just need to feel like my eyes are forced to focus on what's going on on the screen. And, and the darkened room is extremely necessary. Uh, as opposed to my darkened living room with the traffic outside and the possibility of being distracted by you know, a family member or neighbor. So for you, cinema is the focus of uh, discrete viewing that you have chosen yeah. and you are removing the distraction so that you focus on it, right? So it's like... For you, cinema is... If you were in the cinema, but you're also surfing on your phone, that's not cinema anymore nope. because there's the lack of focus, right? Bingo. So I think, yeah. Yeah, so I think that, that that's the the precision with which you view cinema. Cinema is focus on the story for you. Mm. I would also say, like, what makes cinema different is not the size of the building, it's the size of the screen. Because mm. it's like, sure, my 80-inch TV is awesome, but that 80-foot screen is still... It has to be projected... It has to be where even your periphery is filled by, you know, uh, the scene itself. And it's like, okay, as much as I love to watch things on television or on my phone, and the convenience thereof. I mean, there are cameras, there are IMAX cameras that, if you don't see it projected, you don't get it. And I hate to be, like, a little bit elitist about it. I mean, I'm not being elitist, I'm being a bit of a purist. It's like, there's some things, especially when it comes to, like, classic, maybe... Like those John Ford or Akira Kurosawa kind of like aspect ratios, right? Where 
if you watch it on a TV, it doesn't make sense. You watch it projected, and you see the thing span the entire wall. It, it makes sense, you know? Like, you watch something like The Searchers, mm. or you watch something like uh, the opening scene to Hidden Fortress when the... Like, what's yeah. with all this extra space? Oh, it's all about immersion. You know what I mean? And, yeah. like, for me, I'm... Call me an old man. Or apocalypse. Or apocalypse now. Uh. Fucking apocalypse now, okay? You know? I love the smell of napalm in the morning. That scene, watching it on TV, cool. Watching it on the big screen and just seeing the napalm, like, tear through the Filipino forest, right? It's like, this is cinema. You know what I mean? There has to be a sense of uh, grandioseness about it. And, okay, like, if we're going to talk about the Irishman, there is grandioseness in the performances, there is grandioseness in the ambition. Uh, there's also in some of the visuals. But I think what the point I want to make is, right, watching this on the TV was totally fine for me and I enjoyed it. But then there's also moments, especially that scene where uh, De Niro's character, Jack Sheeran, was pushing all those cars off the, the dock into the, into the water. Like immediately in my head, like this would have been fantastic on a giant screen. Or, or yeah. even those scenes where they're just driving. And, and the thing is, I love how cars stop perfectly in the middle of the frame as he's like yeah. and it's like there's just something about the timing and there's like if you if I saw this on a bigger screen it would have been epic but then comes like you know the, the regurgitating argument we have like yeah nobody's gonna pay for this to be in the cinema and nobody's gonna watch this in the cinema because sad to say Irishman if it came out in the cinemas right now would get fucking destroyed by Frozen 2 it wouldn't stand yeah. a chance you know? Yeah, I agree. And, I agree. And 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 ultimately, the the duration also plays a part, right? Because you can have less screenings because it's like mm. however fucking how many fucking hours long. Yeah, it's a combination of a number of things, which is why, and I I think that's the reason you kind of like resign to as well, which like it can only happen on Netflix because Netflix doesn't have a limited cinematic window to extract the value out of it. Like you know, it's not like I have to make all my money that I spent on it in these three months. Because that's you know the PNL that this SPV company that I've created for this film is going to be judged on, and the thing about it is, is that audiences also judge whether they should watch a film on whether it made money or not, whether that's the right or wrong metric. Mm. They still look at the box office numbers. It was number one how many how many uh, weeks in the box office? Did it cross a billion dollars or something ridiculous like that? Right. Correct. So that's the thing, right? We've got all these metrics based on box office numbers that we use as a way of deciding, okay, do I do I spend my time? Because that's the limited resource these days, your time. Mm. And and because audiences that may not know Martin Sorsese or may not care that, you know, the whole band is getting back together, yeah. they may go, huh? Four hours? That's an even longer time commitment. Do I care enough? And let's look at whether it made money. Didn't make money, okay. Why did I spend four hours on a film that didn't make money? And that's the thing, right? Like, it becomes an even harder sell to, to the people that it needs to sell to in order to make money. Whereas if it's on Netflix, like, I don't care if it makes money in the first, like, four months. I've got the entire lifetime of this film to make the money back in terms of the value it delivers to my subscribers. So I think that this is one of those things where uh, Netflix can do it in a way that a studio can't because a studio needs a PL. A studio created a company to do this film they're going to be judged on whether it's a success or a failure on their, from their investors based on whether it made money or not. Whereas Netflix like, I'm playing a longer game than this. I've got the entire lifespan of this film to make the money back and I don't care if 
about opening weekend, opening month, opening year. It doesn't matter. Yeah. As long as it develop, as long as it delivers value over its lifespan, I'm happy. So Netflix can do it in a way that film studios can't. And in kind of like what we spoke about previously about Netflix and how uh, Apple TV and Disney and Amazon all have other revenue streams, so they can do things that Netflix can't because mm. Netflix can only make money on streaming video. So I think it's like kind of the reverse. Netflix can do stuff with content beyond the cinematic window, just as Apple TV and all these other like streaming platforms can make money off other things that aren't just streaming video. Okay, I mean, but I totally agree with you because it's like. I mean, end of the day, right? A lot of the metrics is based upon box office returns and also based upon like how much you know cash it made, or in the terms of something like Netflix, is how many subscribers or how many. Like one thing that I found extremely interesting was how they used the metric of how many people completely watched the film. Is mm. uh, I I forgot what the metric is called. It's like completion or something like see through completion, right? Yeah. And I would say like it is something that I'm thoroughly interested in because it's like as you mentioned earlier. A common metric for success is definitely box office returns. Now, sure, it made a billion dollars. It doesn't mean a billion people liked it, because like we can look at Transformers movies. Those movies made fucking like you know ridiculous amounts of money to warrant like several sequels. I mean, like okay, just look at the Marvel movies, right? But that doesn't determine quality. It just determines profitability. Which is an argument I constantly have on the show because it's like whenever people throw that shit at me, it was like, but it made a billion dollars, hence it's a good movie. No, no, fuck you. No, it doesn't mean a billion people have good taste. But are, are you are you are you doing this podcast with like uh, bankers who are market fundamentalists? No. The market has spoken. <laughs> fuck that shit, bro. God damn it. Okay, the thing made zero money. It was a commercial flop, and it's still one of the best horror movies of all time. I mean, like you know, shitty movies like Big Trouble in Little China, like The Warriors. No, I mean, it's like yeah, and, and and I think. I think even even in terms of critical reception, right? I think that even critical reception we've seen is something that doesn't necessarily reflect uh, reflect specifically to its quality because you know you could be like the Wachowskis and piss people piss all the reviewers off, so they they give like you know Speed Racer completely fucked up reviews, and I watch Speed Racer, I'm like, it's okay, it's actually it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pr- it's pretty fucking good, and and they you know they did very innovative things with like the whole. Uh, the the three the three sixty cameras and the the fact that they built like a, a, a entire bubble of three sixty video where you can manipulate at that space so like they did very innovative things it was actually a good film but because they pissed off reviewers it just got completely thrown under the bus true that uh, coming off that point right because I would say right a film like Speed Racer is perfect for Netflix because it's an opportunity for an author and an artist who has established a certain sense of dare I say clout. I don't know. It feels to me like Netflix is the kind of place to go to and say like I have this really amazing idea. By the way, I'm Martin Scorsese. What? How much can you give me? And like you know, let the dice roll because when it comes to the business model, right? It also kind of feels to me like in the wake of Disney being the all-powerful Galactus eating up studios as it's like you know traversing across uh, the Hollywood landscape right it feels to me like when Disney wants to buy out Netflix Netflix is probably one of the few companies that says like buy what Okay, we're not a studio we're not a brand we're not we don't have merchandising you know we're just a company with a collection of licenses that you can buy when they run out you know and it also kind of feels like they seem to me like they're like the last bastion of like they're looking at all these directors and all these creatives because if okay 
hey, the entire Mirror Max collection now belongs to Disney. Everything in Fox belongs to Disney. They might be throwing all this shit into the vault. We'll never have a Predator movie ever again. And it's like, all these creatives are looking across the horizon and thinking, okay, before I get sucked into the black hole that is Disney, right, where can I go to to finally achieve my true creative vision? And it feels like Netflix is the guys flying the flag. Is like, as long as you make it, we'll pay for it. Because, sure, like the only caveat is, can we just slap the N on the thumbnail and you can do whatever else you want. I, I think it feels like HBO probably will also give people that scope. But I, I get what you mean. And I think that it's an important point as well because um, when you said that what would they buy Netflix for and it's like licenses, well, there's kind of the original IP. And I think that if Disney bought Netflix and started selling the IP on the Netflix IP, so like, you know, all of the Stranger Things, the things that Stranger Things merch, right? Netflix doesn't have official Stranger Things merch, but people started remixing their own mm-hmm. and like creating like, you know, like ego ego t-shirts with, with like, you know, that were related Basically to the entire Threadless model where you kind of yeah. have a version yeah. of it. You know, the, the official, unofficial stuff. Correct. So so there's, there's stuff that Netflix can make money from that they're not even trying to make money from yet. But that aside, it, like there are a number of things that would be worth Disney acquiring Netflix for. Main thing would be all the platform developers and engineers and, and getting that IP. But it's more of like, you know, if you can get that technical talent to build your, build out your platform, then you would have clearly the, the best platform. I don't think... But then again, it doesn't make strong business sense to do a total buyout just for the sake of that. But I would say it would be strong business sense to kind of uh, slowly attract them one by one and just pull them and just kind of like, hey, you, you're not happy over there writing technology for Netflix? Come to Disney, you know, read Disney for your family, give someone I, money. <laughs> I, I think that they're not going to be paying more money. From what I've heard, I think that uh, Disney pays significantly less than Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu. Because so they don't have the budget, the, right? The, it's because they are a production company and not a tech company. And tech companies just generally pay a lot higher for engineers. And production companies... Like engineers aren't the backbone of production companies. So, you know, as an engineer. So, I think another thing is that even if you bought the engineers one by one, you don't buy the engineering culture, you don't buy, you know, the way the engineering team works, you don't buy the ethos of how they write code, you know, uh, the DevOps uh, in terms of how Netflix deploys. I mean, there are a lot of things that Netflix does in terms of how it deploys its platform, like, you know, things like Chaos Monkey, which is. We are purposely going to shut off a fucking like entire region. We're going to shut off US East and see how the servers automatically recover from that. Wow. Right? Most people like we, we avoid this shit. Whereas we're like, okay, we have Chaos Monkey, we've got Chaos Gorilla, and we've got Chaos Kong. And these are basically like events that are deliberately inserted to see, let's see if we throw Chaos into the system our system is built to recover from the chaos. We're not just going to hope that it does, we're going to make sure that it does by deliberately shutting the thing off. Yeah, so this is stuff that like, it's just proving you're resilient, right? Because it's, and these are things that they do as a technology company, that a production company will be like, why would I degrade my own service or, you know, possibly risk pissing off customers just to prove to myself that my, that my, uh, you know, my, my technical resilience of my system is, is high. 
I want to do one more thing because I really want to kind of uh, drive the, the point of Netflix as a distributor. Who would you like to see who doesn't get enough shine, like, you know, get some Netflix money and do his, his pet project? Like, for me, definitely, it's like, okay, if Inarito's got one, then uh, Scorsese's got one, right? I would love to see Del Toro with Netflix money because Del Toro has been fucking shafted left and right because he lost Pacific Rim and after Shape of Water, it seems like, you know, and the fact that they did another Hellboy movie, okay, he had an idea, he had a very clear, distinct vision for that. And he even had a franchise built in. And they decided to fucking screw him over with that. Del Toro to me is one of the few very visual and very, I wouldn't say effects heavy, but I would say his aesthetic sense and his design style is something I would like to see. Give him the kind of fuck you Netflix money, it's like, how much money do you need? You know, what is this grand vision? Because till this day, it's been teased to me that Del Toro was still trying to attempt uh, Lovecraft's uh, at the in the Mountains of Madness. Okay, and, and to pull off cosmic horror properly, not only requires the kind of unskilled genius and like virtuosity and imagination of a Del Toro, but some fucking Netflix money. I would say $666 million would just about cover it. You know, at least for the... At least for the... The implied tentacle porn that has to be associated with anything Lovecraft. Sorry. Anything after now. Because if fucking Roma can only be made on Netflix. If if the Irishman can only be made on Netflix. This to me feels like a clarion call to every director out there struggling to make it in the studio system right now. If if they're not going to buy your fucking idea. You know, I mean, unless you want to do a fucking Robert Rodriguez and just do everything yourself and pay yourself, or if you're going to be like fucking, uh, I would say, I don't know, like, you know, now you're just like a, like a David or Russell or Paul Thomas Anderson is like, yeah, I'm all about just quirky, weird stories. I'm not going to try and push visuals whatsoever. But guys like fucking Del Toro, you know, I would mm. say to, to me, like, he is, no offense to the guys at Double Negative and all of my friends who work in the post-production and the, the VFX and CGI sections of Marvel and Disney, like, that shit's fine. But I'm very bored of the very sa- of the of the same lighting style, the same previous style, the way how all enemy aliens look like they're from the same fucking video game. I want some artistry, I want some creativity. So, fucking hell. Sorry, I agree. I agree, and I think like what what's happened is that you know Hollywood is ossified towards uh okay we're all going to do sequels we're all going to do comic book movies we're all mm. all the stuff that has built in audiences and it looks like Netflix is going if you're a creative and you don't want people that giving you notes that don't know how to make films this is the place to go. It feels like right, and I mean I think if Netflix is uh, willing to make Singapore social sure they'll green light. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, for all our US listeners, please don't look up Singapore Social. We're extremely embarrassed about it. <laughs> that is not a good representation of what passes off as an influencer in this country. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I think it actually might. That's the problem. Oh, God. Fuck no. No, we are the last game podcast. We're the no, true no. influencers. So so, 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 so don't judge us by our influencers, right? No, judge us by the podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Please. We have- I, yeah, you were asking who I would like to see with Netflix money, and I think that I would like to see Lisa Joy, uh, Jonathan Nolan, basically. Like, I want to see. Whoa, yeah. Wh- <laughs> I would like to see 
the creators of Westworld with Netflix money. Fuck yeah, right. But then they got HBO money. I, I mean, would like to see. I I just want to see what they would do on the platform because I think that it's very interesting in the sense of like what kind of world would they build because right now they're still on you know renew season renewals and I with HBO right sometimes like you've got great series that run two seasons and then they get cancelled. Game of Thrones and cough, I'm not cough. saying that. <laughs> Or yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it can't happen on Netflix because it has happened on Netflix as well. True that. But get I'm down, cough, cough. <laughs> Correct. So, so I'm just interested to see what you know creators of Westworld do with Netflix money. I'd like to see what the creators of The Expanse do with Netflix money. So, like everyone that's doing stuff outside of Netflix, I'd like to see uh, Dennis Villeneuve. I'd like to see what he does with that as well. You know who else I would like to see with Netflix money? I would like to see. Just give him the cash and see what he does with it. I would like to see fucking Lars von Trier with Netflix money. You know what I mean? Like Mr. Minimalist himself is like, okay, you have a blank check. Make a fucking movie for once. <laughs> you want to go minimalist with Lloyd Kaufman? Nah? Mm. Guys, Catch the Irishman is available on Netflix. If you have it in your region, uh, please do not try to watch it as a fucking miniseries. Fuck that. Watch it as an actual film film. If you're a fan of the likes of uh, Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, if you're a fan of good acting, strong performances, amazing directing, storytelling, narrative, all those things that make cinema cinema, please catch The Irishman. Uh, heavily recommended here. Uh, so, maybe on that note, Dustin, where can we find you? Oh my god, we're gonna do this again. We have okay, to. We have to do the closing stinger. <laughs> okay, you can you can find me on Twitter, and I'm trying to spell it correctly, and hopefully I can get it for after the third time of trying. L U M I N O I R. My god, I got it. There you go, Dustin. Finally, finally, some Netflix money to get you to spell your own handle right. <laughs> Thank you so much for catch uh, sticking with us on this very lengthy episode of Last of Podcast, where we talk in whole heart about the Irishman and all the things attached to it. Uh, Good night.